You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. And top of the morning to you, you're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR, and you've got Jacob and Zane in the studio, and Linda who's just visiting and sitting in and drawing some uh, art this morning, that's that's me mum, <laughs> good yeah. to have you here mum. <laughs> Alright, so um, yeah, before I guess I'd like to start, I'd like to acknowledge um um, that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Um, I'd like to pay our respect um, to Elders past and present and that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land. Now the first thing um, I'll sort of like to sort of announce is there seems to have been some progress made on the Jabberon tent embassy mm. um, in a sense that there has been kind of some kind of negotiation kind of agreed upon with the traditional owners and Vic Rhodes I think that was the or, and the state government etc um, it does appear to be like a victory although it's unclear I'm still sort of trying to read through a lot of the media um, and the sort of implications of of all the kind of, because there's a lot of legalistic language in a lot of the documents, but a lot of the activists are, you know, presenting it as if it is a victory. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's reflective of the fact that it's been such a long and hard, you know, struggle, um, let that has been led by the traditional owners, but also has been all, um, the result of all the solidarity given by protesters and people who have supported the camp in, you know, the past year. Um, so I think it's, it's definitely kind of an example of how, you know, direct action and solidarity can, can win. Yeah, I've got a media release from the Jabarung here and it says, a least invasive, least cost and safer to construct solution has been negotiated by the Jabarung traditional owners with the Victorian government to duplicate the Western Highway. The Jabarung traditional owners have negotiated an interim settlement with Major Road Projects Victoria. It preserves the area and six trees which are subject to their judicial review application in the federal court. They agreed on tightly limited construction works over a 3.5 kilometre stretch of the alternative alignment in the Western Highway. This will enable the duplication alignment to be built six months faster at far less cost and with uh, best, least cultural heritage and environment impacts. This alternative alignment is similar to, but less environmentally invasive, 
than the alignment which VicRoads initially proposed in its environmental effects statement in August 2012, which it called Option 2. A planning inquiry panel in December 2012 uh, rejected the VicRoads proposal in favour of the current proposed Option 1 alignment. So, yeah, that looks like a pretty uh, significant um, victory or, or, you know, a, a pretty good development there, and, and as you say, it's been a, a long, hard fight. So, and <clears throat> the next headline kind of story I kind of want to talk about is probably everyone kind of read the comments um, that Peter Dutton kind of made over well yesterday um, about climate protesters um, claiming that climate protesters um, should be locked up or named and shamed. Um, and that they should have their welfare payments cut off if they're on welfare, because that's sort of um, falling into this sort of assumption um, that all activists are on welfare, but that's besides the point, regardless of whether they are or not. It's a completely kind of authoritarian sort of um, turn by... Well, it's not really a turn. He was always like this. <laughs> um, and I, that I do think that Peter Dutton's comments actually... You know, they, they reflect a kind of certain honesty that you won't really get from most of the, the capitalist politicians and most of the, um, the capitalists who are actually opposed to these growing, to this growing protest movement that has been led by groups like Extinction Rebellion who have been committing kind of mass kind of civil disobedience, especially in Queensland. Um, and I think it's also really, as I've, I think I've said on this program before, it's really reflective of how important this fight, um, you know, against the climate crisis is and why it's very important to build the movement because it's clear, despite the government sort of trying to tell us that, you know, there's no, um, the, you know, the election, you know, happened and it's clear that people want coal. Um, this growing protest movement indicates that there's a growing opposition, but of course, um, as opposed to the government actually just conceding to the democ- um, to democracy, um, they're trying to pa- um, they're trying to do everything in their power to actually repress the right to protest in light of um, this growing movement against um, against fossil fuel um, against building any more fossil fuels against, uh, for taking action on the climate, etc. Mm. Yeah, I don't know what else to say. Peter Dutton is uh, the scum of the earth. Yeah. And I think um, <clears throat> it also kind of reflects, I think, the nature, I think, of the capitalist state, um, especially when the capitalist state fa- um, faces any kind of kind of opposition um, to the status quo. Mm. It's been interesting. I think since the big win of the Andrews government last year in Victoria, um, which was a sort of resounding defeat of this xenophobic scare campaign about so-called African gangs. I think there's been a, quite a noticeable change of tack from conservatives in Australia away from, um, like, the, the sort of really blatant racism of the last 20 years, and they seem to have changed tack to attacking... Um, welfare recipients more and attacking unions. It's like there's been a bit of a political change of direction to mm. try and well, they, they, go also, back to one of their traditional also, scapegoats um, in, other than people of colour. I think they're deliberately also trying to make climate protests as part of that, but of course they're yeah. trying to combine all those things. Um, yeah. A climate protester also happens to be on welfare and possibly there's also climate protesters that probably happen to be trade unionists but <laughs> mm. and they're probably going to go of that because I think it's quite, I mean, even though 
um, unions like the construction union haven't necessarily taken the strongest position on climate. If you can kind of see what the government would do if, um, you know, working class um, trade unions would start to take up trade union issues more seriously, there would be even more vilified. In fact, there'll be all bank, um, um, placed in the sort of category of deplorables, etc. Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting one because I think, look, obviously the climate strike uh, along with, you know, a significant percentage of Melbourneites and the construction union. I was one of a very small rank-and-file contingent, but I don't think the um, construction union sent along any, like, you know, token delegation of officials or staff and didn't even post about it on their Facebook, which I found pretty disappointing because there was probably about a dozen other unions that did have some sort of photo or update from the climate strike and just, you know, just basic, like, we support this, good on your kids, but the construction union didn't, which was a bit of a bummer. Uh, I think if the con- if the union movement more generally <coughs> put the same amount of energy into supporting the climate strike as they put into um, your rights at work or, to a lesser extent... Um, change the rules and I say to a lesser extent because I think your rights at work had a lot more rank and file organising it was just a little bit more independent and grassroots than the uh, change the rules campaign but yeah if the union movement put serious energy into mobilising like using its networks getting people out on the street to support the climate strike you could have you know twice as many people as the already massive crowds that were out two weeks ago and I think it would be really once you start getting crowds that big it's really difficult for government to say oh we're going to now prosecute a whole bunch of you using our anti-union laws that we've got on the books so if there's ever a good time to defy Australia's anti-democratic union laws it's right now as part of the climate strikes. The kids are asking for union support. They're saying we... Because this was another argument that's been raised by some more cynical union hacks, for want of a better terms. They say, oh, yeah, no, we didn't turn up and have a public sort of um, display of our presence at the climate strikes. We didn't want to detract from the kids. So like, no, the kids are asking you to come along and, and you know, very publicly show your support. Don't, don't be trying to say that you didn't want to, you know, dominate or, or, you know, take the limelight off the kids. They want you there. So I think, um, yeah, if there was ever a good time to defy our anti-strike laws in Australia, it's when there's 300,000 people getting out on the streets. Yeah, yeah especially since, um, I mean, I... I when the when the global climate strike was first announced, I did think a bit a lot about. I knew this would never happen because the trade union movement is not at this stage, unfortunately. Um, but I did imagine the possibility, like if you know, if you had thousands of trade unionists or hundreds and thousands all go on strike on that day, um, the implications um, for the ruling class, I think, would be 
pretty, te- in fact, the ruling class, I think, would be terrified. Mm. Um, and in fact, any attempt um, by, say, the Liberals to actually attempt to fine all those workers um, would have been met with a massive public backlash. As mm. were, um, and of course, if um, Labor had somehow got in at that time, because the global climate strike was going to happen regardless of whether um, the Labor Party were, um, or Liberals got elected, um, Labor would have been kind of exposed from for the sort of class sort of collaborationist party they are. Mm. So there's there's lots of, you know, there's actually, you know, we need to, workers need to be bold and actually take it action, especially when there's actually a ripe time for it. But fortunately, I think there will be another opportunity to keep making that argument to workers and, mm. and making that argument to trade unionists because um, I, I do suspect there will be another global climate strike. It's not going to be, that September 20 is not going to be like some one-off. No. Uh, I, I agree. All indications are the kids intend to keep mobilising around this, which is very uh, exciting and just another indication of the uh, political maturity of these you know, young kids who've read widely about climate politics and sort of synthesised a lot of the most important lessons of the last 10 or 15 years, I reckon. Yeah. Mm. Very cool, very exciting. Pull your finger out, unions. All right, we'll go. We'll play a few quick announcements, and then we'll get on to our first interview, which we're going to be interviewing Chris Lee, um, who is a member of Social Science, who wrote a pamphlet on the Chinese Revolution. So, yeah, the reason why we're having him on is it's the 70th anniversary of the People's Republic of China, um, which probably people have lots of different opinions on in terms of the state of it, but we're going to be sort of talking to Chris Lee about its actual historical significance, but then also talking a bit of a critical discussion on the nature of the Chinese state today. From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC. A 3CR supporter. Alrighty, welcome back. You are on Greenleaf Radio on 3CR. It is 14 minutes past seven. And on the blower, we have got uh, Chris Lee from the Socialist Alliance. He's written some... uh, Pretty cool pamphlets over the years. He's wrote a really good one about how the workers and peasants made the Cuban Revolution. He's written another one about the Chinese Revolution. And that's what we're talking about this morning. Welcome, Chris. Hello, Zane. So, so Chris, I guess the first kind of question, I mean, um, since the reason why we have you on is it's the 70th anniversary of the Chinese Revolution, um, which first happened on, you know, October um, the 1st, 1949, when um, Mao you know, essentially declared the People's Republic of China, which was actually, it actually was a government that actually took a while for the, even the government to kind of recognise because the old kind of capitalist sort of reactionary forces went all the way to Taiwan and were 
you know, declared themselves. It was sort of like actually a similar situation to almost like Venezuela, where you had this really small, tiny, um, you know, a relevant sort of section um, declare themselves the, you know, the legitimate rulers of China, and it was the only one that was recognised internationally until the late 1970s. Um, but yeah, can you tell us about what is the significance of the 1949 revolution, um, especially worldwide, and I guess even in terms of the social gains that were made for the Chinese at the time? Well, I mean, there were big social gains for the people. Um, this is despite the fact that the government made huge, uh, a lot of huge mistakes, but nevertheless, despite that, there were big gains in terms of health and education because the, um, previously... Uh, Particularly in the rural areas, there was sort of, um, sort of huge poverty, um, high um, regular famines, um, regular epidemics of diseases, and so on. So, the, the the new government brought healthcare and education to the rural areas, um, or at a basic level. And so, between 1949 and 1980, the life expectancy nearly doubled. So, and, and that's despite the fact that. Um, in the middle of that period, the, um, there was a rather disastrous um, experiment called the Great Leap Forward, which um, temporarily set back that progress. But um, nevertheless, the people made big gains in terms of health and education, um, in terms of you had the nationalisation of industry, which um, provided job security for workers um, and, uh, yeah, things like that. Uh, so... Um, on the whole, uh, despite mistakes, um, the, uh, the revolution was a, um, a positive step. And it was also an example internationally, actually, inspired people internationally. And what was kind of the example of its kind of international impact on the time? Well, um, well um, people in various uh, countries um, look towards China. Um, well, here in Australia, it's sort of particularly during the 60s, um, uh, there was a strong Maoist movement um, uh, and the same in many other countries. Now, I, I think it was a bit... Uh, uh, the Maoist movements of... Well, they, they te- tended to um, follow Mao uncritically and sort of not really recognise some of his mistakes, but nevertheless it had, had a big impact and, and in, also in a number of third world countries that... Uh, you had guerrilla warfare movements, which, well, partly imitated Vietnam, but also China as well. And I guess, what what can you um, talk a bit more about the, some of the impacts that um, that sort of hindered the revolution, um, such as the Great Leap Forward and um, the Cultural Revolution, which are still kind of China still faces the kind of resonating effects of today. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, so the. The, the new government sort of, um, well, it was revolutionary in the sense that it carried through the land reform, so it took land away from the big landowners and distributed it among the small peasants. Um, but uh, th- then they wanted to go on to um, to collectivise agriculture um, to, um, to, yeah, replace individual farming by collective farming and... Uh, 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 establish what were known as the communes. Now, in principle, that's a good thing to do, but you you can't force the pace. You can't force small peasants to um, to form, join collectives against their will. And so there was a bit of um, t- 
too much pressure on the peasants to to try and hurry things up, and, and so that was um, that led to a decline of agriculture, which for a period, um, which led to the return of famine, which had been abolished, but now came back temporarily for a couple of years. So that was one example, was the so-called Great Leap Forward. Um, but it was an example of um, that decision-making was too centralised, uh, that, say, Mao sort of, and his close associates had this idea of what should be done, but um, uh, which sort of was transmitted down to all the party officials uh, to try and carry this through. So, yeah, it's sort of a bureaucratic method of operating from above rather than sort of allowing the people to proceed at their own pace in uh, advancing towards socialism. Hmm. And But what about the Cultural Revolution? Because um, that was one of the other kind of significant events that happened in China at the time. Yeah, well, sort of after the Great Leap Forward, which happened uh, about 1959, uh, there was a division within the uh, leadership of the Communist Party because um, some... Some people said, well, we've made a great disaster with the Great Leap Forward. Um, it needs to um, make concessions to um, the market forces and so on, whereas Mao still wanted to um, sort of more or less go back to the period of the Great Leap Forward uh, when things improved a bit. So uh, so there's a, a factional division within the party, um, which and Mao used um, uh, what he called the um, Cultural Revolution as a as a sort of factional warfare against his opponents within the party. Uh, now, he, he called on, say, students um, to criticise their teachers and stuff like that, which um, uh, uh, sort of in, in some ways sounded radical, but it was um, used... Um, it's sort of developed into the bullying of the teachers, so it's humiliation and stuff like that. And similarly, that was applied to party officials who were who had disagreements with Mao. They were humiliated and so on. So uh, it was sort of um, a, a, basically a bureaucratic manoeuvre uh, under the cover of um, so-called cultural revolution. And it sort of also caused, um, caused some setbacks um, for the revolution yeah, and um, I guess what going into now where um, China is kind of today, um, what when was the sort of re- when did the kind of re- restoration of capitalism kind of happen um, in China, and sort of where did that kind of lead us kind of today in terms of the nature, current nature of the Chinese state? Well, I mean, after Mao died, um, there was um, Deng Xiaoping took over. Um, and uh, the, he introduced um, ma- what were called market reforms. Now, to some extent, there, was, uh, there needed to be some increased role for the market, um, but um, it was, uh, went too far, in my opinion. Um, uh, so so they, they privatised a lot of um, state-owned enterprises and uh, 30 million workers were sacked uh, due to either privatisation or total closure of state-owned enterprise. So... Um, uh, and you had the development of a capitalist class. Um, it, it began to occur in the 1980s, uh, but I think after the um, protests in, in the Tiananmen Square and the subsequent Beijing massacre, uh, 
that's speeded up the restoration of capitalism uh, because it was in the 1990s that these 30 million workers were sacked. So, um, yeah, uh, so you had the development of uh, Chinese capitalist class and also allowing the uh, foreign companies to um, invest in China. Uh, so you have things like the Apple iPhone made in China uh, uh, with Chinese workers being exploited for the profits of the um, an American company. That's just one example. So, yeah, that, that sort of occurred, began to occur in the 1980s, then developed further in the 1990s, and yeah, it's continuing today, although there still is um, uh, a strong state sector uh, of certain industries um, but the majority of industry is privately owned now. Hmm. Um, Chris, I'm wondering if you could comment. There's a range of views out there. Some people say that China is this ultra-repressive, Stalinist, evil police state, and then you've got other people saying that it's this glorious workers' paradise, and even despite the market reforms that you know the workers are still taken care of and there's a lot of workplace democracy and blah, blah, blah. Can you comment, like... I'm thinking that China actually is neither of those and sits somewhere on the spectrum. And can you can you talk about mm, repression and you know, like? My understanding is that there's a hell of a lot more people imprisoned in the USA than there is in China. Yeah, well, I mean, so it's a bit hypocritical of um, America to criticise China for repression because, there's, as you know, there's millions of um, people disproportionately black uh, and Latino in and Native American in U.S. prisons, but but in China there was also repression, particularly in uh, uh, currently in the uh, Xinjiang province, which is where the Uyghurs live, which is a Muslim minority. Uh, they have been subject to severe repression. Also, in terms of uh, workers, um, uh, so workers, I mean, in during this period uh, since the restoration of capitalism, there's been huge. Uh, well, a very large number of worker struggles because, um, as I mentioned, 30 million workers were thrown, um, made unemployed, and so uh, obviously there was resist- resistance there. So, uh, had workers murdering their bosses and things like that. So, th- there has been resistance to this capitalist restoration. Um, and, but there's also a large number of um, strikes of demanding higher pay and uh, uh, or demanding that the bosses pay what they're they promised they'd pay. Uh, so, I mean, there's been a lot of worker militancy, um, which doesn't get much publicity. Um, yeah, so, so and sometimes, uh, often these uh, strikes are repressed by the police, but uh, but there's just so many of them that sometimes the police just say, oh, well, uh, let us happen. So, um, and the, 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 the government has been forced to make concessions uh, by this wave of Work and militancy, so wages have increased uh, over the past couple of decades. They've gone up quite substantially due to worker struggles, but also to the government has made changes to, to the law to um, uh, make it um, a bit easier for workers to to actually um, to get get their rights. Um, I mean, the, uh, there's sort of there's disputes tribunals and so on, which um, can deal with. The disputes between workers and bosses and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, so I wouldn't paint the door as a bleak picture, but but nevertheless, there is repression. Uh, to say, um, uh, 
repression directed against workers, but also against students who act in solidarity with workers. So some of them have been um, imprisoned as well. Hmm. Well, the last, the other kind of question is um, is one of the criticisms of and one of the debates on the left is about the nature of China and its status as, say, an imperialist power, and whether you would think it's um, accurate to describe. Um, China as an imperialist power, especially in terms of its growing trade war against the US. Uh, yeah, I'm a bit, a little bit uh, uh, in the middle on this. Um, uh, so, China has been expanding its investments overseas and places like Africa, Latin America. They they want raw materials, um, oil. Um, various minerals and so on from Africa and Latin America, so they've been investing overseas. And But beyond that, they've also invested in things like ports, like the Port of Darwin. Um, so, I mean, there's growing overseas investment, but still um, you also have a lot of foreign investment in China. So, as I mentioned, the Apple iPhone being made in China and Chinese workers being exploited by Western capitalists. So it's a bit of a mixture of a semi-colonial state of um, being exploited by the West and but also China beginning to expand overseas uh, as well. So, it's, um, uh, yeah, so I wouldn't give a definite answer as to whether China's imperialist or semi-colonial. It's a bit, bit of both. Um, yeah, and the, they, they haven't sort of sent troops overseas to any great extent, although they do have a base in Djibouti in Africa. Um, but they do intervene in um, uh, conflicts in other countries, like in Sri Lanka. They support the government in repressing the Tamils. Uh, so, uh, which, <clears throat> to my mind, that's um, sort of a form of imperialist intervention to support a government uh, against a, a, uh, uh, a rebellion, which the United States and Australia also su- support the Sri Lankan government in that case. So... So um, it's not anything different from what uh, Australia and the US are doing. So anyway, it's, it's beginning to develop some characteristics of imperialism. Yeah, hmm. I'm uh, I'm curious also on that point, Chris. Uh, China, as as part of this Belt and Road Initiative, has uh, been, as you say, investing in infrastructure, but also loaning pretty large amounts of money to various developing countries around the world. Uh, some parallels could potentially be drawn between that and World Bank or IMF kind of loans. Uh, and historically, the, the kind of the stick and carrot approach with those IMF or World Bank loans was things like structural adjustment programs. So if a country couldn't pay back their loans, then there would be these kind of the, the IMF and the World Bank would say, all right, you've got to you've got to privatise things and you've got to do this and that so that you can pay us back our money that we loaned you. Are you aware of China engaging in anything like that and sort of, I guess, giving direction to countries that it's loaned money to as to what they need to do in order to be able to pay back those loans? Um, well, I'm, I'm not aware of any pressure for privatisation or anything like that, but... Um, well, but what has happened is that um, in some cases of Chinese loans, say to Sri Lanka, so um, uh, the, 
that the Sri Lankan government couldn't pay it back, so the the um, Chinese government has basically taken ownership of the the, the money was loaned to build uh, build a port. So the Chinese um, government has basically taken ownership of the port um, to um, because the government couldn't pay back the loan, and so this is a way of paying back the loan to uh, to for China to take. Uh, a, take ownership of the port. So you, you, I suppose you could call that a form of privatisation. Hmm. Or, or like a different type of uh, quote-unquote imperialism because there's, yeah. Yeah. Although I should also say that in some cases China has written off loans which can be repaid. So the same, uh, they have political reasons for making loans. It's not just economic. So if they want to be... Um, keep this government on side, well, they can write off a loan. Mm. Uh, now, can you also comment on environmental policy in China? Because some, in, in recent years, some commentators go, oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter if Australia stops exporting coal because look at how filthy China is. It's the world's biggest emitter and blah, 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 and kind of goes down this xenophobic path. They kind of neglect to mention that China is basically the world's factory, and so once you take away the emissions from producing a whole bunch of stuff for the West, you start to arrive at the actual emissions footprint of domestic China. But yeah, can you comment a bit on that, on environmental renewables policy, reforestation, stuff like that? Well, they are are moving rapidly into renewables, um, wind and solar and so on, uh, but they're still burning a lot of coal so um they're trying to cut it back but um uh, as far as i know that they haven't really succeeded in cutting back the use of coal they they are using more renewables but still using roughly the same amount of coal now they they're trying to uh get get rid of coal burning in the neighborhood of cities like beijing to try and improve the um amount of dirt in the atmosphere uh but still, coal mining is still occurring in um, places further away from the main cities. So, um, yeah, the environment is not not very good. Um, there's a whole lot of pollution and so on, which but uh, of water and air. And uh, so, but as you mentioned, a lot of that is due to production for the world market. And uh, yeah, so um, I mean, there's lots of protests about pollution, but. Uh, as well as I mentioned workers' protests earlier, but there's also environmental protests. They're, they're a big thing. Mm. Yeah, the, the cities, the, the smog is, is shocking in the in the big cities. Yeah, they are trying to cut it back, as I mentioned, by reducing coal burning in the neighbourhood of the cities. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting too, because it's kind of for health reasons, but also to try and stem this rising tide of protests. Yeah, yeah. And uh, reforestation. I understand China has been uh, look since the since the revolution has engaged in a massive re reforestation pro- program. Yeah, yeah. There, there, there are. I'm I'm not too familiar with the details, but yeah, there is a lot of reforestation going on. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Although um, in, in earlier stages of the revolution, there was a lot of trees cut down as well for ag- agriculture, but they, they are trying to remedy that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I guess where do you see China headed? What what do you think? What, what's the political direction? Are we going to see something like uh, 
I don't know. Do you think China really took on board the lesson of, of Glasnost in the USSR and sort of decided that instead of having this sudden dismantling of um, the state economy and this sudden shift to capitalism that they would do the whole transition more smoothly and is the pushback against that where do you see the future for China um, well I, I can't really predict the future I mean, oh come on Chris get your crystal ball out <laughs> <laughs> I mean so the the hopeful things are um, sort of the rise of worker struggles um, and the rise of in, environmental struggles and so on um, but uh, whether they'll these will reach the point of um, uh bringing back uh, a movement towards socialism. I, I, I can't... I would like to think so, but uh, I'm, not, I'm a bit premature to say that. Um, yeah, I mean, so in terms of the, what lessons they drew from the collapse of the former Soviet Union, obviously they... Uh, well, they, they decided that Glasnost was not a good idea, so... Um, uh, but, I mean, because... Uh, too much, um, in, in their view, too much freedom would uh, lead to chaos, um, which is not quite the lesson I would draw. I, I think, in, in my opinion, free discussion is good, but the, the economic policies uh, for restoring capitalism is bad. So, mm. Um, mm. whereas uh, their lesson is, uh, well, we're, we're allowing the restoration of capitalism gradually, uh, but but we don't want too much free discussion. But nevertheless, free uh, discussion does occur in China in, on the internet. There's a lot of debates and so on, uh, uh, which are, can be um, websites can be shut down and, and so on. Or, but nevertheless, debate does occur. So, um, yeah. Hmm. And income inequality. I've read something from uh, it was a paper from Thomas Piketty who said. The distribution of income in China is more unequal than in France in, in today. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, so, yeah. Since the restoration of capitalism, so the income inequality has grown, and so China has um, the second highest number of billionaires in the world after the United States. Um, so, uh, yeah, there has been a growth of uh, income inequality, although. As I mentioned, with the rise of worker struggles uh, of forcing up pay rates, um, this um, uh, th- there is a counter tendency there, but st- still, there's a very high level of inequality. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And could you foresee something where I don't know? Could you could you see bourgeois democracy coming to China? Is there any scenario in which the like the capitalist class in China and a section of the um, Communist Party kind of split from the current approach and they kind of revert to having a, some kind of bourgeois democracy and with a view to implementing neoliberal reforms and, and you know, increasing the pace of um, that reversion to a sort of open capitalism, getting rid of of these state-owned enterprises and stuff. Can you f- see that happening, or does that seem unlikely well, I mean, for the, now? The, there's certainly debates within the Communist Party about um, 
types of um, state-owned enterprises. I mean, there are neoliberal elements which would like to get rid of state-owned enterprises, um, and this is something which the Western governments also talk about. Um, they say oh, we're facing unfair. Our companies are facing unfair competition from China's state-owned enterprises. <laughs> it's a bit ironic when they uh, they um, always saying that state-owned enterprises are inefficient and da 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 in their own countries. But uh, <laughs> so, so um, it, 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 yeah, I mean, there are neoliberal elements which um, yeah want to um, complete the. I mean, there's been a lot of obviously, as I mentioned, privatisation already, but um, but that sort of came to halt, halt a bit when with the. Um, First, the Asian economic crisis in the late 1990s, and then the um, global financial crisis. It sort of uh, caused some people in the Chinese Communist Party to think, well, capitalism is not that great. Uh, maybe we should keep our state-owned enterprises. So, uh, mm-hmm. c- c- well, they, they when the um, export-oriented um, production, uh, the factories producing for export. Uh, during the global financial crisis, they found that they were not selling so much and therefore started sacking workers. Well, the state intervened to employ some of those workers in uh, in building things like high-speed rail, which China has the greatest amount of high-speed rail in the world. So, so, so the the state has does intervene to um, uh, deal with some of the problems created by the private economy. So that's um, I think uh, I mean. Well, time will tell, but I think they still, majority of the Chinese leadership still want to stick to that policy of keeping some state-owned enterprises. Hmm. Interesting. All right, well, we'll uh, probably have to wrap it up there. But um, thanks for giving us a bit of an overview of of China and the, okay. well, yeah, the story thanks. since 1949 up to today. Yeah. Yeah, well, people can read more about it. Um, if you look, look on the Links website, links.org.au, and sort of um, search on China, um, you, can, uh, you, you can go into more detail about some of these things. Yeah, we can. Mm-hmm. All right, thank you very much, Chris. Okay, thanks, Jacob. Thank you. See ya. Catch you on. All right. Uh, yeah, Chris Slee there, member of the Socialist Alliance and author of a pamphlet. What's the name of the... Um, China, I think something about, it's basically about the Chinese revolution. It's titled China Day or something. <laughs> yeah, cool. Alright, well, we'll just play a quick announcement and then we'll bring you some more news. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986, and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. 
war is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy, and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR in 2019, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun. Which way the wind all right, it is a quarter to eight on Friday morning. You're listening to Greenleaf Radio on 3CR. What's what's in the news? All right, so I'd like to talk about this article from Greenleaf Weekly, which is about Australia's dirty little secrets on coal exports. And so this is an article written by Christian Slater and Dave Sweeney. Um, and they start off by um, opening up with discuss, um, talking about how, you know, the Re- Resources Minister Matt Canavan jetted off to India um, last month to continue to the, continue the unedifying government tradition of flogging the nation's dirtiest minerals to places that, that least need them, and as documents obtained by the Australian Conservation Foundation um, revealed. And, of course, the minister was there to hawk Australians, um, Australia's coal and uranium industries, which he claims will deliver salvation to millions of Indians living in poverty. In practice, Carnarvon was there to cosy up with the billionaire owners of companies like the Adani Group, which has allegedly been involved in corruption, tax evasion, human rights violations and environmental destruction. It is a strange leap to think, um, as Carnarvon does, that these multinationals can be trusted to root to reduce global emissions, lift millions out of poverty and create a jobs bonanza for Australian workers. And I think this is just kind of reflective of, you know, of sort of like, you know, the nature of um, of the Australia. And, you know, research commissioned by the ACF found that Australia's domestic and exported coal emissions contributed to about 3.5% of global emissions in 2017. By 2030, this figure could be three times higher and pushing 11%. You know, climate change fuelled by Australia's coal will hurt the world's poorest first and fo- worst. Found to limit global warming to 1.5C could expose the hundreds of millions of people to climate-related risks and poverty. And, of course, in a country like India... The human impacts of hotter weather, unreliable rainfall and more frequent extreme weather events will be profound. And, you know, unlike contested proposals for nuclear power stations in India, there's strong support for the uptake of renewable energy. India's government has ambitious plans to rapidly upscale its agreement in clean energy. And under the Paris Agreement, the nation is committed to have 40% of its extored power coming from renewables by 2030. So I think that that's just a bit of a kind of summary of some of the research that's been done on sort of Australia's sort of, you know, role in coal exports to the region. I mean, they're always, I mean, this is one of the kind of justifications that they kind of do um, for when we, for when activists oppose coal, they pretty much argue that, you know, we, we need to have coal because we need to help the poorer nations like India, etc., by exporting our pollution to them. <laughs> Despite mm. the fact we might interview, we might we might invest in renewables here. 
Yeah, it's such a bullshit argument. And, I mean, the other thing that that article maybe doesn't quite mention as, uh, give as much focus on as is due is the deglaciation of the Himalaya. Uh, a large, a huge number of people in northern India, Pakistan and China get their drinking water and the water that they use to grow food from the Himalaya. The first ice cap on the planet that's going to be lost to warming is the global is the world's glaciers they are the most they're they're the first large body of ice on the planet that will be lost long before the the uh greenland ice sheet and the antarctic ice sheet collapse and so that will produce flooding and then it will produce water shortages and then it will result in uh serious um, vector-borne diseases because you're going to have, you know, any time there's big floods and everything's covered in mud and puddles and and that sort of thing, that's a breeding ground for um, mosquitoes and disease. So, yeah, this idea that coal is good for poor people in India or anywhere else in the world is just absolute rubbish. All right, we might play a quick um, announcement, and then we'll play might play a recording of this. Actually, um, this would be a good way to segue in this um, speech that was from the International Peace Rally by um, Scott Colon, Colon, who is a ETU member and um, trade union activist, who's been um, key to initiating this um, new group, which is, I think. You can. Oh, is that that young guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he spoke at Trades Hall at the start of the climate strike. Yeah. He's got some fire in his belly, that kid. Yeah, That's yeah. That's cool. So, yeah, um, I think, I'm not sure what he talks about, but we'll find out, but it's in relation to a rally that attempted to bring the attention, that bring the links between climate change and war. Yeah, well, we were just talking about India. Uh, India has just dispatched troops to the disputed territory of Kashmir. I'm pretty sure it's the Indus River. Snakes its way through Kashmir and into Pakistan, back into India. And um, that's another... That's going to be another side effect of, of a warming world is conflicts over water and countries trying to capture uh, rivers so that neighbouring countries don't get access to that water. So, yeah. All right. From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC. A 3CR supporter. You are listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday morning breakfast show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855am digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Green Left Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au. 
or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. All right, so as just mentioned, this is a young ETU activist, Scott Colon, uh making the links between climate change and war at a recent... Uh, was it a rally or a summit kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, it was a rally. <laughs> oh, yeah. Is that at Trades Hall? No, it was in... Um it was in the city. It was after the climate strike on September 21st. Oh, cool. All right. So, yeah, Scott Colorn, young ETU activist. Hello, comrades. Uh, yes, sir, my name is Scott, and I'm a proud and active member of the Electrical Trade Union. And I want to start by acknowledging that we are in a climate crisis. And if unprecedented action doesn't start soon, we will be pushed towards a sixth mass extinction far sooner than ever before. Our government, despite this fact, is doing absolutely nothing. They'd rather put elitists and companies' profits before humanity's very survival, and it is an utter disgrace. We are not prepared for what we are going to face. We will face floods, extreme weather, famine, mass migration, and we can already see it with the bushfires that are happening in September. That has never happened in our history in Queensland and New South Wales are already feeling the burn. It is happening right in front of us and it's time for us to do something about it. Once the climate emergency hits us, civilization will break down and wars will be waged as a result to control resources, to control water, to control food. And we need to ask ourselves who will win that war? Will it be the rich or will it be the poor? Will it be those in power or the working class? This is what our future holds if something, someone doesn't act now and our government is doing nothing. They are not listening to us. It's already happening in Bangladesh. Due to the rising sea levels, people cannot produce food and they need to migrate to survive. Their neighbouring country, India, is going to run out of water by 2020 in their impoverished cities. What do you think they're doing in Bangladesh? They've built what I would like to call a wall of bloody death. Anyone that tries to flood from Bangladesh to India is either shot for jumping the wall or deported back to inhumane conditions. This is happening today. Imagine what happens when we start running out of water worldwide. It is absolutely disgusting because it is preventable if we act now. Conventional approaches are not working, I'm sad to say. You can try lobbying, you can try petitions, you can try voting, but it is getting us absolutely nowhere. We need to be willing to do something more. We need to be willing to take action for a long period of time. It is our duty as people on this planet, it is our duty as citizens of Australia to fight for the future of our future generations, to fight for the future of planet Earth. Now, there is one mob that is already currently doing that, and that is Extinction Rebellion. They understand what we are facing. They understand that people need to stand up and actually say something and have their voices heard, because our government is doing nothing. On October the 7th, we are doing a week of rebellion. A one week is all it's going to take for them to listen to us. I encourage each and every person here to take part in that. They are peaceful. They want action and they want to save our bloody planet. It's not that hard, so let's get it done. I'll see you all there, comrades. Yeah. Scott Colon, uh, a emergent ETU activist, talking there about the links between climate change and war at the tail end of the climate strike two weeks ago. 
Alrighty, we're getting close to the uh, activist calendar, and then coming up after the activist calendar, we're going to be speaking with um, Max Black from Extinction Rebellion about the upcoming week of action that uh, Scott was just talking about there. Uh, I'll just play a quick announcement and then we'll move on. I'll discuss this quick article from Green Left Weekly. Victoria's roadside drug testing program is not about road safety. In last year's governmental inquiry into drug law reform, it was noted that Victoria's RDT program is falling behind on latest evidence regarding impairment. Currently, Victoria Police can charge people for detection of either cannabis, amphetamines or MDMA. But those detections do not correlate with impairment. Impaired drivers should be removed from the roads, and that's why we're urging an inquiry into Victoria's RDT scheme to ensure that the resources that are currently employed to make our roads safer are being properly used to make our roads safer. Help us refocus road safety onto what makes roads safe. Sign the e-petition, parliament.vic.gov.au forward slash council forward slash petitions. And look for the Inquiry into Drug Driving Reform, Petition 117. A 3CR supporter. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japarung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarung traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarung country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. Welcome back. It's Green Left Radio. It's Friday morning. It's 7.58. Just got a quick news story and then we're going to move to the activist calendar. Yeah, well, this is just a quick kind of news thing because um, I don't think we sort of announced it. This sort of happened last month, um, but I'll also talk about sort of other things that are kind of happening around this. But one of the big sort of political demands... Um, that sort of Extinction Rebellion has been pushing, has been um, pushing sort of parliaments and government institutions to declare a climate emergency. So one of the more interesting developments was that South Australia's parliament um, has declared a, a climate emergency um, following on from the Australian Capital Territory. Now, it's sort of interesting that a lot of these... Um, a lot of these de- declarations can be quite tokenistic, but I do think they sort of put give a bit of a foundation to actually push the government to do these local government institutions to actually do a bit more. In fact, one of the things that we did with the Moreland Council was because they had declared a climate emergency last year, we pushed them to sort of say, well, if you are declaring the climate emergency, that means you should support um, the weak rebellion, um, and yeah, you should. You should out, um, you should support the weak rebellion and um, and the blockade IMAR campaign. So there's sort of kind of like examples like that. Now another interesting thing that's happening is um, there's actually currently a petition going around in the federal parliament. Um, that is, if it gets over a certain X number of votes, that they will debate um, 
whether they would um, have a um, debate the question of declaring a client emergency. So there, they're sort of... Is this in- for the federal parliament? Yeah, federal parliament. Yeah, so I think that's just an interesting kind of development sort of happening there. Um, and it's sort of fascinating how they've been going through. Although there was the example of the Geelong Council, which did not um, vote... Um, uh, to declare climate emergency, which actually frustrated a lot of climate activists who were um, at the council meeting last week. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting um, tactic, I guess, to get governments to declare the climate emergency. It's a pretty easy thing for them to do. Like you say, it's potentially a bit tokenistic. But then once they've done that, then you push them to act as though that actually is the case, which it is. Interesting tactic that's been developed there by XR. All right, shall we move into the activist calendar? It is 8 o'clock. Yeah. All right, so to get started with the activist calendar, some big things happening. So the Extinction Rebellion Spring Rebellion is going to be beginning this week from Monday, October the 7th, and the big action will be the Spring Rebellion, the opening ceremony, where um, people will be encouraged to meet at base camp in Carlton Gardens at 4pm, and then there'll be a march to road to the roadblock t- um, together and arrive at Flinders Street around 5pm. Um, so that's going to be sort of the big sort of action that's sort of kicking up. I'm sort of unclear on how big the Extinction Rebellion Spring Rebellion is going to be. All I know is that there is over a thousand people going on Facebook, and that is for the week-long event. So, you know, if there was a possibility that over a thousand people occupied a protest camp for a week, and then there was different groups of people that came in at different points of time, that would be a pretty lively and a pretty great um, protest. So um, there is going to be actions happening throughout the whole week. Um, and the next action is going to be on Tuesday, October the 8th, which is Occupy the CBD. Um, and that's going to be at 8am at the Carlton Gardens. Um, and then on Wednesday, the uh, youth... Um, XR Youth and Students will be organising a Swarm the City for Climate Justice um, at 3pm at, I think, the RMIT Bowen Lane. Um, that's um, where it is at the point. Um, but then there will also be all sorts of actions happening throughout the entire week, including a blockade IMARC dress rehearsal outside the BHP office at 7.30am on Friday, October the 11th. Um, and now, in terms of some other events that are happening, um, there's going to be a public meeting, Riding in Exile, where um, where Australian Kurdish writer Rosa Jamin talks with Sammy Shah at 6.15pm at the Wheeler Centre. On Saturday, October the 12th, there's going to be a counter-rally against the March for the Babies at 12.30pm at the Parliament House. There'll be a fundraiser... Um, for Grandmothers Against Removals, um, Radical Punks, Monkey Butler, and When Our Turn Come... Well, that's your band, Zane. It it sure is. (laughs) Um, Play in support of um, Gama, a grandmother-led movement fighting against the forced removal of Aboriginal children from their families, and they'll be happening at 8pm, and tickets are $10 at the Cafe Gomo Bar at the 7-Eleven High Street in Thornbury. Yeah, get along to it. Uh, and on that same night, there's a neo-Nazi band playing somewhere in Melbourne at a secret location 
they haven't advised who's um, coming, so there's a statement, um, only a united force of fascism's targets will stop Nazis from growing, push, organising and educating to build a united front against fascism, is outraged at the, re- at the revelation that two fascist groups in Melbourne are organising a concert on 12th of October, where a fascist plan will perform. The event is organised by Blood and Honour Australia and the Southern Cross Hammerskins. Uh, it goes on to say, thanks to years of consistent anti-fascist organising, the concert is to be in a secret location and attended by only those the organisers can personally vouch for, limiting their ability to recruit. Uh, so yeah, come along. The um, the campaign against racism and fascism encouraged people to uh, come along to that gig at Cafe Gummo on October 12 as a kind of like a an anti-racist counter gig. Hmm. Yeah, and on Sunday, October the 13th, there'll be a Melbourne ra- marathon. Run for refugees. Run, walk, or push the pram, but do it with um, Team um, Asylum Seeker Resources Centre at the Melbourne Marathon for the Hope of New Life. Um, on Monday, October the 14th, um, there'll be a Stop Oceana Gold Rally. Stand with the Filipino people, people and the Save Noria um, Rizkaya movement to stop the abuses of Australian mining company Oceana Gold. And they'll be happening at 12 noon at 357 um, Collins Street in the city. Um, there'll be a public meeting, um, the history and relevance of Victorian progressivism. Um, Marlon Lake will discuss the significance of Victorian and Australian innovation, establishing decent wages and working conditions in the late 19th and 20th century, and they'll be having it at 7pm at the New International Bookshop. Um, and then there'll be, on Tuesday, October the 15th, there'll be a public meeting on and on mining and capitalism, um, featuring a range of speakers. In fact, I think Zane is going to be one of the speakers for that on Tuesday, October the 15th. Yes. Um, and then there'll be, um, there'll be speakers from the Eritrean community and the Filipino community. Basically, the whole discussion is going to be around the destructive effects of mining and capitalism, which I think should be an interesting discussion, especially with the um, blockade of IMAR coming up. And there's also obviously going to be, you know, some interesting kind of questions raised about the nature of mining under capitalism because one of the, I guess, the um, the things about mining is, unlike coal, it's not an industry that we can completely abolish, per se, because, you know, almost everything we use in our lives does rely on a certain degree of mining, but then there's also all sorts of weird things that happen under capitalism. For example, the fact that we still mine gold, for example, like, what is the purpose of mining gold, other than creating profits? Well, I mean, we use gold in electronics, but it tends to be quite small amounts, mm. uh, but the amount of most of, I think, oh, look, I don't know statistics, but what I do know is that there's a heck of a lot of gold in the form of gold bricks, gold bullion, stored in bank vaults in different parts of the world as a sort of, you know, a quote-unquote safe currency option for, for governments and, and rich people. And... Those gold reserves would cover the world's um, electronics and, and jewellery use of gold for, for 
yonks. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm kind of referring to there. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, and although there are some right winners that want to bring back the gold standard. Oh, God. <laughs> the world economy is way bigger than the amount of gold that there is available on the face of the planet. You can't, you can't have a guarantee that at any time you can go into a bank and convert your money into gold. It's not, it's not a valid option. It's totally outdated. Yeah. <laughs> um, on Saturday, October the 26th, there'll be a protest, No Right to Discriminate, Kill the Bills, and they'll be happening at 2 p.m. at the State Library, October the 26th. Um, and then from Monday the 28th um, to Thursday, October the 31st, there'll be the Blockade IMARC um, for climate justice. Some of the world's worst climate criminals are gathering in Melbourne from October the 28th to the 31st. Companies that profit from fueling climate change, stealing Indigenous land and exploiting workers will gather at the International Mining and Resources Conference. Their actions drive animal extinction as well as mass displacement of people from 6am each day at the Convention and Exhibition Centre at One Centre Place in South Wharf. And then there'll be a public meeting, um, Corporate Violence and the East India Company. Historian um, William Dalrymple discusses some lessons from the past, and they'll be happening at 6pm at the Anthem Theatre at 188 Collins Street in the city. Word. All right. Should we play some uh, music? Yep. Cool. All right. This is Climate Strike by my band when our turn comes and we are playing Cafe Gummo as mentioned on Saturday October 12 there High Street Thornbury get amongst it Trash, and for a brief moment, they can make up under the cash. 
on the future that I'd like to contemplate I'd rather be part of a mass movement to break the state Emergency action decarbonize across the globe Nationalize the energy sector, yeah, lock and load Make all of the wind and the solar publicly owned Get it done right and keep prices under control The police and the battens and the media barons At the barriers, we've got to bulldoze to make it happen Seriously gonna wait until there's no North Pole Before we step on the brakes But even if way too late And that's a fact Gonna get out of the street and take the power back Seriously gonna wait until there's no North Pole Before we step on the brakes But even if way too late And that's a fact Gonna get out of the street and take the power back Whoopsie. All right. Uh, you are listening to Greenleaf Radio on 3CR. It's 12 minutes past eight. That was Climate Strike by When Our Turn Comes. And on the phone right now, we have got Max Black from Extinction Rebellion. Welcome, Max. Uh, hi. Uh, so, sorry, I'm hearing a bit of an echo, but um, hi. Is that Jacob there? Yeah, yep. Yeah, it's Zane who was talking for it. Now it's me. Um, no, oh, Jacob. Yeah, so I guess the first question, Max, is can you tell us a bit, give us a bit of a broad overview about the Spring Rebellion? Um, from a lot of our understanding, it's going to be a week long of civil disobedience that is going to be centred around camp. Um, but yeah, can you just tell us a bit about what's going to be happening on that in this whole week? Yeah, of course. Um, I just want to quickly correct you. Um, my, my, my real name is Max White. Oh, okay. um, oh Max White. But, <laughs> But yeah, we have to. <clears throat> we're we're going to have a week of disruptive action in the city. Uh, we're using Camp Carlton as a base camp at um, the Carlton Gardens, and that's an area where anyone can come down and get get involved um, with no risk um, in taking part. But throughout the, throughout the week, there's going to be a variety of actions that'll intend to disrupt the normal um, activities, business as usual in the city. So. Um, the Monday night will be a sort of kickoff action uh, where anyone can come and take part and just show that their support. But then on Tuesday and Thursday, there are going to be some disruptive actions in the morning. So um, I know there will be a group of rebels taking a uh, major intersection in the city and just blocking traffic um, to make clear our demands. Um, and on Thursday, uh, another highly disruptive action will be taking place. There will also be some less disruptive actions like um, uh, some some vigils outside of state parliament um, and meditations. Uh, there will also be some um, civil disobedience, so people moving around the city, um, dancing and 
listening to fun music. Um, so we've got a few things like that planned as well. Um, throughout the week um, in the camp, there will be talks and um, and workshops for people to sort of learn what the movement's about and how how it all works. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and um, this this week of rebellion is going to be part of kind of like a global kind of week of action. Um, in it's going to be in kind of like in um, coinciding with a lot of other sort of week of rebellions that have been organised across other countries by Extinction Rebellion. Yeah, exactly. Um, so as you probably know, the Extinction Rebellion started up um, around London, um, and that's probably where it's strongest at the moment. But uh, it's a global movement, it's decentralised, and anyone who sort of anyone who acts in the within the ten principles of Extinction Rebellion has the ability to join and start a movement in their area. So we've got um, this week of rebellion is actually going to have large actions centred on London, Paris, um, Berlin, Amsterdam, New York, LA, um, and there's going to be some in uh, Madrid, and then you've got here Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane. Um, New Zealand, a whole bunch of others. I've heard of actions being planned for India as well. Um, so I think it's going to be maybe, I mean, it's going to be pretty massive, the, the amount of civil disobedience happening simultaneously around the world at the same time. Um, I'd expect that what's going on in London is going to be really quite big and be getting a lot of coverage, a lot of news and making quite a stir. Um, but the things going on in Paris and Berlin will also be interesting because you'll have European rebels descending on those cities um, to make a, a lot of action there. Um, so one of the reasons that the actions in London in April, which was you know a sort of warm-up for what's happening this time, one of the reasons they were so big is they had um, rebels from Extinction Rebellion all across the UK all go to London at the same time. Um, and... When we're seeing that in Europe and the United States as well, I think it's a recipe for big disruption. Mm. And <laughs> yeah, yeah one th- the next question I'm going to ask is um, one of the slogans I've kind of um, I've kind of seen around around this spring rebellion is that mass civil disobedience beats extinction or something. And um, I kind of want to hear from your kind of point of view and your perspective on elaborating on that on what is kind of like you know with what is sort of Extinction Rebellion's kind of philosophy on why this sort of weaker rebellion is kind of necessary, um, yeah, especially in the context of following on from all the um, the pr- history of all the different climate movements that have kind of happened in history. Yeah, well, I guess at this point it's kind of a last roll of the dice, a last-ditch effort, really. Um, the We've known about the dangers of global warming for over 30 years. like We've had really good science on it since the 1980s. Um, and despite all the warnings, they've, they've all been ignored and we've made zero progress on actually reducing emissions. So um, the problem is that we're now at a point where the danger is so great, um, we're, we're so close to tipping points that could put us into a hot house earth and lead to the end of human civilization. Um, and that's something that could happen within the next couple, within the next decade or two. Um, so when heat, uh, when heat reaches extremes and crops can no longer grow in the places that we're used to, we're going to have, um, massive shortages of food 
And the problem is if you have a massive shortage of food so that, um, you know, over a billion people can't eat, you get a breakdown of the social fabric um, worldwide. Um, what that means is more conflict, um, more starvation, more inequality, um, chaos and violence and the, and the breakdown of human civilization. And that's a risk that uh, all of us are running. So that, that, that means you and I could be, could be dying from that. Um, and we're all going to have to get used to living in a um, greatly reduced standard of living. Um, so with Extinction Rebellion, it's the problem. The issue is we, we've done, we've signed the petitions, we've emailed our MPs, and we've called them up, and we've um, we've spoke to the media, and we've written letters, and we've marched in the streets, and we've um, done all of that, and. Uh, carbon dioxide emissions, greenhouse gas emissions are still going up. Um, nothing's worked. So we're at, the, we're at the stage where we have to take um, desperate measures and um, disruptive civil disobedience is, is that step at this point. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I guess uh, that I'll, if you if you're able to reveal this, because I did hear some hints from some some other extinction rebelling people, um, what's what do you think is really what's next for extinction rebellion after this spring rebellion is over? Because I imagine that um, to really resolve this climate crisis, it's going to take more than just one week of civil disobedience. Although that is going to be part of the process, just like um, the global climate strike and um, that happened September 20th was is part of the process. Um, what, what do you think is sort of going to be next um, for Extinction Rebellion following this week of civil disobedience? Yeah, well, I think um, first a lot of people will take a short break, um, regenerate their energy um, because people have been pretty frantically preparing for this. Um, but what the, the logic of this kind of action is that um, when we go out and make this kind of disruption disruptive action we're going to get lots of attention um we're going to get lots of condemnation from um from you know people in power who don't want to change the status quo um but we're going to also get a lot of people who um are inspired by what we do and want to join in so um the idea is that next time when we take action we'll do it in greater numbers with greater skills from people having practiced in this week of action so what's next um, well, I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens in London, where they have much a much stronger movement than we do. Um, there could be a major change in the power structures in London as a result of this um, action coming up, um, and that could also inspire people throughout the world, and including here, to um, take action if they see a big success there. Um, but the main thing will be... Uh, recollecting our people, um, integrating new people, training people up, preparing people for the next round. So um, there's not really a consensus on what the next round might look like, but the idea is we'll come back in greater numbers, more determined than ever, and we'll keep pushing until we see um, the government committing to zero emissions by 2025 to hold a citizens' assembly where ordinary people will decide on how we get there. Mm. Yep, Zane, do you have a question you want to cast? Yeah, Max, you've um, just sort of spoken a bit earlier about how climate change is going to smash um, food production and there's a bunch of research looking at how uh, the impacts of climate change are going to disproportionately affect 
those who are least responsible for creating the emissions in the first place, i.e. generally people of colour in the global south. Uh, It's possible that we'll see mass sort of flows of refugees, um, and I'm I'm wondering if you can comment on this... um, you know, the, the, I guess the importance of building anti-racism into the climate movement and the question of, of refugees and how, how that ties in. I know that you can't necessarily speak on behalf of XR. It's a decentralised thing, but I'd be interested in your views on this question. Yeah, and, yeah, so everything I'm saying is my personal view, but um, in the nature of a decentralised movement, that's pretty much the best you can get. Um, the... Yeah, it's, I mean, we're already seeing that, aren't we? We're already seeing that the, those least responsible for the problem are paying for it. Um, we're getting, uh, there's like a low estimate of 400,000 people dying each year as a result of global warming. And that's, mo- that's mostly not people here in Australia or in other wealthy countries. That's mostly people in the global south. Um, so we're getting desertification of vast areas across, um, uh, Sub-Saharan and North Africa and we have a situation where the fourth biggest city in India has huge water shortages, the taps have gone dry so people are going without water um, you have the massive flow of refugees across the Mediterranean and across the um, across Central America and a lot of that is being driven by um, the local environment basically becoming inhospitable to humans um, so we already have a problem of uh, the most vulnerable paying for the um, exploitation and, and destruction of the environment by the rich. So in my opinion, I mean, Extinction Rebellion does have a principle in its ten principles, which are sort of prime for me, which um, one of the principles is that we welcome everyone and every part of everyone. And I don't think you can be consistent with that principle without being anti-racist specifically. Mm. Um, and it is a bit difficult because a lot of people are coming to Extinction Rebellion and a lot may be new to activism and it's sometimes difficult to um, accommodate a wide variety of ideologies under one banner. Um, so there is conflict, especially on the Facebook page. <laughs> um, but actually, if you if you actually go to a local a meeting of your local Extinction Rebellion group, you find that the communication is very respectful. People are very willing to um, be welcoming to everyone. Um, it's just a bit... Uh, there has been recently a few statements put out um, by some of the Extinction Rebellion branches locally to explicitly make clear that we are against racism and for everyone. Um, when we have a situation in the future where... Uh, the situation has gotten exponentially worse than it is now. We could be seeing hundreds of millions or even billions of people displaced from their homes, and um, it's hard to really imagine what that is going to look like and the the, the chaos that's going to be taking place. Um, for me, having hundreds of millions or billions of people displaced from their homes, that's that's a crime against humanity. Um, that's mm-hmm. a that's a billion tragedies, a billion families uprooted from 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 their situation and and it's really um it, it breaks my heart and that's one of the reasons why i'm fighting mm. yeah i think yeah. On, on its uh, at its core it's yeah. 
it's really it's as much a, a, a social issue and it's about uh, humanity as much as it's about environment and, and you know polar bears and coral reefs it's about the massive human impacts that this is going to have yeah exactly I mean yeah it is a I guess it just like your perspective is going to sort of inform what really motivates you about this for me it's a crime against humanity it's the it's the greatest tragedy uh, in all of history um, if you're an animal rights activist what's going on is that um, our destruction of the climate is causing hundreds of animal extinctions every day so if you take a perspective that is outside of human rights and is um, taking the side of uh, the animals it's also a, a massive like uh, I, don't, I don't think massive is really a strong enough word it's, it's just the, the greatest tragedy of all time what's going on um, but this is something that threatens everybody there is no escaping this um, all we can do is do our best to actually try to try to mitigate and try to prevent this. Yeah. Sorry, Max. Right. Um, we're going to have to cut your... We just went realised we're over up. time. Yeah. Um, but for all okay. those who are listening, please come along to the Spring Rebellion, which starts at on October the 7th. Come along to um, yep. Camp Carlton at the Carlton Gardens. Right. Yeah, and right. it'll be fun. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much for talking with us this morning. Thanks for talking to me. All right. That's Bye. us. Stick around for... Beyond Zero Emissions. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.com dot org dot au or call one eight hundred six three four two zero six. For new subscribers, it is only ten dollars for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the Three CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into Three CR Community Radio eight five five digital on the AM dial and streaming live on three CR dot org dot au. Start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now? Oh!